Hello, I'm Hunt Etheridge. I'm an award-winning dating and relationship expert, TV personality, coach, matchmaker, writer, entrepreneur, husband, father, bon vivant, and all-around swell guy. I've been in the love industry for over 15 years and have been following all the ups and downs of today's dating dilemmas. I teach my clients that dating is a mix of biology, psychology, sociology, and anthropology. To understand our motivations, the motivations of the person sitting across from you, and the motivations of society at large, we have to delve into different aspects of it at different times to understand the machinations behind it so we can maximize our benefits. To keep myself updated, I'm constantly reading studies on all sorts of topics that can help me better understand my clients and what's going on out there. I've pulled together some of the most brilliant minds from across different fields to share what the data is telling us and how that can impact each and every one of our lives. This is Hunt for Relationship Science. Hello, um, I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, I read your recent study. Uh, doesn't necessarily come trippingly off the tongue, but psychological factors substantially contribute to our biological aging, evidence from the aging rate in Chinese older adults. Um, first off, I just want to jump to the conclusion so people that are just tuning in can understand what we're talking about, and then we can kind of get into more of the stuff here. So in the conclusion, in the last paragraph, it states, the study findings further support the necessity of companionship and a psychologically pleasant environment for healthy longevity. Now, of course, there's going to be a lot of caveats to that, which we'll get into now, but I do, I found it interesting that there's starting to be measurable ways to figure out how our psychological factors are affecting our, you know, well-being, longevity, um, you know, fascinating stuff. So thank you again for being here. Um, and what got you into, I guess we'll start, I'll jump with like, um, uh, what's deep longevity, what you, what's that you're working on right now or the company. All right. Yeah. So I believe that round of introductions is also should be placed oh, somewhere please. in here. Yeah. So, uh, hello, my name is, uh, Fede Galkin and I'm the research director of, uh, deep longevity, which is, uh, a Hong Kong based startup and we do research a lot of stuff that is related to aging, physiological aging, psychological aging, and are trying to find the ways for just regular common people to improve their aging rate and achieve longer health spans and lifespans. It is officially owned by a Hong Kong investment fund called Endurance RP, which is a publicly traded company. And the whole company was created in 2020 from the division of another startup, which is now currently more involved with drug design called Insulic Medicine, which is also now a big enterprise in <clears throat> innovation, uh, in drug design innovation. They're using a lot of artificial intelligence to create new drugs and find new huh. genes that can serve as drug targets. And back in the day, there was a, a division of this company, Insulic Medicine, working on biomarkers of aging. And eventually we split into our own entity and now we are creating digital tools that allow people, clinics, uh, and basically any any organization to 
find uh, how to improve and slow down the aging processes in the bodies of their clients or, well, their own bodies, as we're talking about the consumer applications. Yeah, because that's something that a lot of people don't uh, understand necessarily is there's one thing about prolonging life and there's another thing about prolonging the quality of life. Um, you know, psych, uh, psychological age versus biological age. Like if, if, if we could all live to be 100, but we're incapacitated by 75, that wouldn't necessarily be something that would be quite as much of a milestone. Whereas, you know, being able to be active and have our, our psychological age be, um, you know, younger than our biological age and be able to continue along that, that would be, I would assume that's, that's what we'd be headed for. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, <clears throat> even just uh, looking from the um, dr quite dry perspective of economics, mm -hmm. uh, the older population is uh, <coughs> growing globally and is putting a lot of pressure on the economical structures. So the younger generations need to uh, maintain the lifestyle of the older populations who are not quite as productive as they used to. So by increasing the health span uh, with uh, various anti-aging interventions and therapies, you are improving the whole economical output of the world and making it uh, more uh, more robust and helping people live longer. You make sure that uh, even older people who currently cannot contribute to the economy and carry their weight or uh, <clears throat> have various health problems that need to be taken care of, they still can take care of themselves uh, and have a full, enjoyable experience, uh, even yeah. beyond the 100 or uh, 120, if we are taking the current uh, lifespan limit for the humans. And so I've read, but I kid, I haven't, not within a study, more anecdotal, that the average child born right now will live to see 100. Is that factual or is that like a best case scenario type thing huh um i'm not that big into this whole demographic uh thing so right it's a huge yeah so an average an average uh, lifespan globally but i cannot really put a finger on it where where it could actually be countries are so very different in terms of uh in terms of their expected lifespan at birth right now but i do not think that any of them are at 100 right now yeah. Um, okay, cool. Because I'm looking at my daughters and going, oh boy, oh boy, how, how's this going to work out? So um, cool. Um, so uh, just something that you mentioned in different countries right now, just going to jump to a, a question that you know I sent you to is, mm -hmm. do you find that there's a difference in this data between collective societies and individual <clears throat> societies? Um, and co collective societies being T many times more um, um, the Eastern or Southeast Asian or South American with, with very close-knit uh, family-oriented um, structures where individualistic societies tend to be more the U.S. and, and East or Western Europe and, and that sort of thing where the rugged individuality is respected. So do you find differences in the data? Ah, yes, speaking of the uh, differences in, since we're talking about psychological aging, mm -hmm. um, I'd say that the process of psychological aging is more universal. One of our co-authors on the paper that uh, we are discussing right now uh, is Helen Funk uh, from Hong Kong, and she 
<clears throat> has done a lot of research on this topic called uh, social-emotional selectivity theory. I, look for, is, I would like to check that out, definitely. Yeah, uh, which is kind of uh, a description of uh, the evolution of the human motivations as people grow older. And uh, to cut long story short, as people grow older and their time horizon shrinks or time perspective shrinks, which is not always the case uh, for only aging, right? For example, if a person is expecting to move across the country uh, or uh, take up uh, some decision that uh, will severe their social bonds, uh, in this case, their time horizon or time perspective shrinks as well. But the most common case is aging, when people just grow older and realize that there is not that much le uh, life left in front of them. So when mm -hmm. people are faced with uh, these kind of terror of their own mortality, uh, they tend to value more emotionally meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm. As younger people uh, value more exploratory behavior, mm -hmm. uh, you always seek new acquaintances uh, because they pose... Uh, an imagined benefit to you, right? You never. Yeah, well, you get new dopamine and serotonin boosts from new people and new people liking you and stuff like that too. Yeah, and you never know where these new people can lead you, and this mm -hmm. is why you always seek these uh, new acquaintances, new circles of friends, and try to try a lot of things that you wouldn't try without them, without meeting them. But as people grow older, uh, they start valuing their own psychological well-being more than this exploratory behavior. And in this case, they, uh, they basically <clears throat> drop their peripheral acquaintances and focus more on what is called socially meaningful relationships. And here is where the uh, cultural differences between collectivists and individualists uh, come to matter. Uh, because uh, for different cultures, emotionally meaningful uh, may mean different things. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure about people, as I said, in Latin America, I'm not sure whether there were any studies about social-emotional selectivity theory there. Uh, the existing studies focus mostly on the Northern America, uh, US, Canada, and the East Asian uh, countries, uh, so mainland China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, and <clears throat> in uh, these comparisons, uh, all cultures exhibit these uh, behavior to uh, make your social circle so social network uh, more emotional and meaningful to you but different cultures uh, they mm, end up with slightly different compositions of social networks uh, for people gotcha. of old age and in more collectivist societies uh, the a typical elder person social network is composed uh, primarily of their uh, immediate family, nuclear family, and extended family, and the friends, acquaintances, all peripheral, uh, peripheral uh, connections, uh, they just drop them off. So people stop talking uh, to their colleagues or just uh, random people they met some time ago and focus more on their family. Uh, the same tendency is actually going on in Western countries, uh, by that I mean US, but it is um, much a much weaker association. People still maintain um, a significant portion of their social circle among their 
uh, old friends. And in one of the in one of the studies of Helen Fang, uh, she looked at an unusual um, for this type of studies population of Germany, just because everybody focuses on U.S. Mm-hmm. And nobody actually looks uh, into European populations. So she looked into it and she found out that actually in uh, Germany, uh, the social interactions uh, with age, they become uh, less saturated with your family. And actually people tend to interact more with their friends in Germany uh, with age. (laughs) <laughs> which goes uh, completely in contrast to what uh, she has found for. Uh, do you, do you have an anecdotal thought on why that might be? Oh, there is quite um, a long discussion uh, section of that part. But first, yeah, is that you know, different cultures uh, place different um, different emphasis on what constitutes emotional. Uh, meaningfulness in a relationship. Yes, you know? or just yeah. in general, what what is good, what is fun, what is you know, the, everyone's barrier to that is or, or, or definition of that is very different. Some uh, some other explanations were that um, in China um, societies uh, they have strong uh, family bonds uh, called well uh, family bias. So you choose to. Uh, value your families much more than in the West and interact with them more. And as people grow older, uh, they internalize these cultural stereotypes more efficiently and uh, start to exercise them more frequently and uh, with more vigor. And if this kind of cultural setting to care more about your family uh, is uh, existing in the Chinese society, then as people grow older, they become, uh, they internalize this setting more and more and end up with kind of its crystallized form where they shed uh, everybody who's not their family and interact uh, almost exclusively with their family. Well, not almost exclusively, but. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. But I get what you get what you're saying. Um, now, talking about China again, um, so when you have the one child policy giving approximately 30 million extra unpaired men if you will in the country how is this going to play out when it when these this group of non-familial men starts to age is that is is there any sort of expectation of like is it going to be that they would live with like I mean, because they don't even have sisters necessarily because of the one child policy to live with. So is what's going to happen basically in this when this generation ages? Is, is there is this part of like the plan to try to figure out what to do with that? Or is there any ideas on that? Because that that seems like that's going to be not that we're going to, into it, but like bored and, and lonely and angry men are not usually a good combination to just have hanging around. Um, yeah, I'm not really an expert on uh, social policies or demographics, but <clears throat> yeah, this uh, one-child policy uh, seems to have uh, more, more harm than good uh, as it um, as uh, as time progresses. And apparently, uh, the Chinese government is now uh, moving in a different direction and is trying to stimulate birth rates, although due to all the 
uh, economic thunderstorms going on in the global economy and Chinese national economy. Yep. Uh, it is not quite uh, as easy to reverse this decision that was once made. That, uh, for oh yeah. Well, their their real estate economy is in the process of falling apart, which I think something like seventy five percent of their government uh, investment is in real estate. So it will be interesting. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I believe that uh, the GDP for the real estate was also really high. Like thirty percent of China's GDP was coming from the real estate sector. Yeah. So if uh, I'll be curious, you know, obviously can't necessarily discern or understand what's coming out of china but i will be curious to see how this particular shakeup um happens um yeah there's just a lot of things going on in china that that are moving pieces that i'm just curious to see how they're going to play out in the future hopefully yeah well the study that we used charles it has already been used previously for to formulate uh, various policies national Mm -hmm. policies that could be used to improve the social economic demographic situation in the uh, in this country and the same lessons could be extrapolated to other societies and i believe that in this slide it is our our study it highlights the importance of uh, creating of creating um a psychologically not stimulating but psychologically um comfortable environment for uh people to live in because what we've shown is that you, your psychological well-being is one of the greatest factors in your process of aging, mm-hmm. physical, uh, physiological aging. Yep. And more than if, more than like if and just to interrupt because I think my audience will find it interesting. Um, obviously, if all the psychological factors that you you measured for, if they were at their lowest, that the combination of those would have a a much uh, a mar- much more market effect on your age than smoking would correct correct which yes, is which that... is fascinating to the layperson i'm sure and like because we've been told all the years of uh, you know how smoking is bad for you but it's not as bad as not being psychologically well as being unhappy yeah. yeah 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 uh previously there were a bunch of studies that show that uh low psychological well-being is associated with also uh, sorts of mm, health outcomes Mm-hmm. Uh, this is being so proven in the U.S. too, as well, uh, in the uh, uh, African American and Black communities. And what you make a point of here: uh, lifetime accumulated stress can be responsible for up to three point six years of uh, extra biological age. When a lot of these communities are grown up in an oppressed way, um, fearing for their lives from the cops or or, or each other, that it, it biologically fundamentally changes the molecular biology of bodies. You know, oh, yeah. and that's that's. Mm-hmm. You know, that then we start to see how much more responsibility we have as a society to keep our to keep mental health good because it's literally affecting everything about us physically. It does. It does. Well, it's glad to see that you've done your homework and you know about this study. And uh, there are a couple of others in which uh, epigenetic age is measured. Right. So this is Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of. I got you. I got your study all highlighted up. I I, I actually read them and, and get you know find out the interesting parts of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is uh, the kind of aging that uh, we've just mentioned. Epigenetic aging. It is um, very molecular, very low level process of aging, uh, which imprints itself uh, in the into DNA. Not literally into DNA, as I don't know mutations from UV light, but into the way. Uh, DNA genes are expressed and tra- are regulated. 
So uh, with aging, these kind of network of regulation becomes more disrupted and you can quite reliably use uh, these footprints of disruption from aging to tell how old a person is. And if a person is, uh, by just looking at their <clears throat> epigenetic profile, uh, if they seem old, but they actually aren't, uh, it means something's wrong with their health. Mm -hmm. And as yeah, we, you look uh, at people that have had a quote unquote hard life, you know, and they look much older than they actually are for all the reasons. Well, yeah, same, same stuff actually applies to many other different dimensions that could not easily be observed with the naked eye, right? So um, people are quite well trained to recognize a person's age by their uh, skin tone, face, right? And uh, other easily visible features. Mm -hmm. But the same process of aging, they uh, go on in every system, in every organ that you have. But we are not quite, we do not have this intuition to tell, I don't know, if you dissect a person and uh, take out their liver, uh, it's, it's not quite as easy to, uh, to tell if this person has a young liver or an old liver. Uh, and it's getting even more uh, tricky if you look at uh, something very low level, like molecular structure of the tissues of the cells and the DNA. And this is uh, why we use this uh, statistical models, digital aging clocks, uh, which can process this information and kind of develop the intuition that we lack in digital form. And we can use them as oracles, as consultants uh, to tell us if this person looks old or young based on their blood profile, DNA, um, metabolites that their body produces, or any other type of uh, molecular feature. And <clears throat> stress, getting back to the topic at hand, uh, life, lifetime accumulated stress, traumatic events, and even social press, it was not shown in, in humans, it was shown in baboons, uh, where alpha males, they kind of, uh, they're alpha, right? So they're at the top of hierarchy, but they are under enormous uh, social pressure from all their peers looking for that high spot. And apparently uh, alpha males in baboon packs, they also exhibit this accelerated uh, aging tract with uh, their DNA. And uh, there are some indications that social pressure from their peers and this constant uh, fight in the hierarchy is what's causing it. Um, and this whole process is uh, mechanistically realized by glucocorticoids, so the kind of stress hormones. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way these hormones work, they kind of uh, mimic uh, the uh, effects of aging and yeah, basically, uh, leave the same footprints as aging does uh, in your DNA. So there are various uh, ways that stress affects your uh, physical health. It reminds me a little bit of also of uh, decision fatigue, just in that, like if you're at the top of the food chain, every decision you make, you might, it might be, am I going to lose my spot? Is this what I'm going to be? Um, and I know, <laughs> excuse me, having ch young children, especially during a pandemic, when you have to make 75,000 decisions in the course of a day that it just, I felt like I was aging faster just because my brain was just falling, falling to pieces on that too. So 
Um, now I find found that interesting too in the baboon in that would there I'm assuming if there were uh, like comparisons to say orangutans or something that don't necessarily have to compete for the social hierarchy that they wouldn't show as as much pronounced difference between physical and biological aging. So I would extrapolate to that be the if there are certain and again it's a hard jump jumping from animals to humans but if if there are different communities that human communities that tend to compete more with each other for social hierarchy i would assume then then that would also contribute to that sort of aging process too well yes i i'd say that we can possibly well at least imagine that the same mechanism of um social interactions is also it also applies to uh, humans, although, yeah, we all understand that human societies are a bit more complex than right. uh, any other primate society and that we have, everybody lives in multiple hierarch hierarchies at the same time. Yep. Right. And we have much more diverse activities. Um, but I also think, believe that I probably need to read that, that paper, but uh, this whole stress caused by your uh, social place um, social height mm -hmm. uh, it only affects the males in the pack and the baboons or uh, females right uh, they are usually born uh, with their hierarchical rank and stay in the mm. same ranking throughout their lives and mm. so the authors uh, they kind of propose that since there is no this uh, social ladder climbing uh, among the females that uh, this is why uh, this um, accelerated aging in higher higher people higher baboons on the hierarchy does not apply to female uh, monkeys now i wonder uh hypothesizing extrapolating in societies like that where the the females uh position is guaranteed say that was maybe you know Western society 50 years ago. Um, if you say, look at the, say for the New York City business landscape, you know, so many more women uh, in positions of power and bosses and CEOs and founders and everything like that, which is a very competitive area to be in as well. And I would wonder if as more women are competing for and against these positions of power, if we will see more psychological aging among the female population um, in correlation with that. Um, it interesting. I mean, at, at, this, at this point, we have gotten so far from the original baboon study that it's uh, just wild speculation. But oh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah well, just to I, stay in the realm of reality, we can just uh, say that, yeah, feeling stress from any source be it some apparent danger, yeah. uh, past traumatic experiences, or yeah. like the the social struggle that you are going through, uh, it does not contribute uh, to your health span. It actually takes away from it. So, how did you get into this um, this realm, or or did you just kind of find yourself in it, or was it something you've been fascinated with your whole life? Well. <clears throat> In Deep Longevity, we uh, have this well, dream, this ultimate goal to create a multimodal 
an all-encompassing model of aging that takes in all your aging dimensions on every level, so be it molecular, um, facial images, whatever, and try to find the best possible solution for a person to uh, age slower. And at some point in 2020, we did a small kind of draft study um, to see how does your psychological feature, how do your psychological features affect your physical pace of aging, or even if uh, this sort of thing as aging, does it apply at all to your state of the mind? And uh, we found that apparently, yeah, apparently there is a, a progression in terms of um, your kind of default emotional state when it comes to uh, psychological aging. And it took us uh, two years to elaborate on these uh, concepts to arrive where we are, and we are finally drawing the lines between your physical aging and psychological aging, and trying to find the ways uh, to manipulate one with the other. And so how do we... you... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I was just uh, going to uh, shamelessly drop, um, drop names of one of our projects, which is called foodtoself.ai, uh, which is a publicly available free consumer service in which we um, <clears throat> offer people to go th to take a questionnaire and first see their psychological age online and also estimate what their well-being will be in the future, in 10 years, I believe. So you can take this test right now and uh, see what happens to you if you uh, do not change your behavior at all and just stay on the same track where you will end up. And <clears throat> our ultimate goal with this kind of concept is that we need to be able to measure more accurately how do various psychological outlooks, attitudes affect your physical health, your physical pace of aging. And then eventually uh, we could try to implement a solution in which people can fix their well physical health problems by adopting the right mindset that uh, they can be uh, instructed to reach with various recommendations, tips, mental exercises. Oh yeah. And yep. So this I can't wait to see one uh, of our directions. Mm -hmm. When I'm a gamer. Uh, I grew up playing Atari 2600 and Nintendo and, you know, up until now, especially I've, I've enjoyed seeing some of the studies coming out that, you know, gamers have three IQ points higher if they were introduced to children and stuff like that, too. I'll be curious to see how that works with dementia and Alzheimer's with us, us too, because all video games are fancy puzzles, you know, and I know that there's the studies on giving seniors puzzles to do and things to figure out that it keeps the brain healthier and healthier so i will be curious to see as the the first gamer generation starts to age uh what that brain elasticity is going to look like but that's that's a topic for another day so um <clears throat> okay so say let's let's look at the six sigma way of this design measure analyze improve and control now you know it how do we improve this how do how does how do we increase psychological well-being to in order to have healthier, longer living people? And I know that's a large question, but 
what are some thoughts on that? How, you know, how, how is the studies going to be used or what, what, what's going to, what could be a focus? Um, yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> this study about um, psychological factors in Chinese older adults, it is, uh, it explains why that is important to care. And our previous study about optimizing our future well-being with self-organizing maps is the answer to how. Uh, in that study, we took people from a totally different population, US in that case, and tried to place them on kind of an abstract map, a 2D plane, uh, which can be used as a map to pinpoint one's location. And uh, using this map, you can uh, outline the regions which have the particular properties that a person would like to have in their lives. Um, the particular example used in our study is using depression. Uh, so basically we dissected this whole map of, of human psychotypes into three clusters. What were uh, the clusters? I'm curious. Hmm? What were the clusters? What were the three clusters? Yeah, the three clusters uh, are basically the clusters which um, separate people who are prone to develop depression uh, from people who are, well, uh, mentally, uh, um, mentally, uh, what would be the right term here? Normotypical, is it? Neurotypical, yes. Yeah, neurotypical people uh, who have the lowest uh, probability to eventually develop depression and the in-betweeners. Gotcha, gotcha. Yes. And, and I mean, depression is, especially male depression right now is, is not going well um, worldwide. I think that men, I mean, men have, they're less in the workforce, they're less in college, there's less families, there's less Rotary, Elks Club, you know, civic activities. And, and I think that, uh, you know, men are going through their own particular struggle right now, um, with support or lack thereof compounded with the, the forced, uh, distance of, of COVID and stuff too. So I think that focusing on mental health, especially depression is an extremely important thing. Yeah. These days. Yeah. These days world has become a pretty depressing place. Yeah, I used to. Nobody have knows what to do to stay afloat, and nobody knows where things will end up eventually. During the pandemic, I had to. I want. I had to balance being informed and like spiraling down. Like I wanted to kind of know what was going on, but the more I educated myself on what was going down, the more depressing that got, and like the worse I felt about myself, just mm -hmm. in general. So you know, I had to find that balance of staying informed. You know, time to just put some of the bad news on the side. Um, so for. Uh, you know, an average person that stumbles across this study, how does this affect me in my daily life? This is this is a big fancy sounding study in a faraway country with with words I don't understand. Like, how does this affect me on a daily basis? What? Why is this important? Yeah, well, this this affects everyone because it um, it is a beautiful illustration for taking care of yourself uh, before you try to achieve some kind of material something that uh, something that can be uh, materially experienced right so health physical health is a material thing but before you get there you need to make sure that you have the right mindset mm -hmm. to keep it to gain it and to put it into good use 
So um, the kind of key takeaway is that please make sure that uh, you are in the right place psychologically before you try to implement any of the other uh, anti-aging methods uh, that are popular or you might have read about on the web or anywhere else. Dude, like, you know, people, of... people always don't think they need to do self-work. People think that they're, they're fine. It's just like the rest of it. Trying to get people in my industry as well, too, to understand that there's some work that all of us could stand to do on the inside uh, is sometimes an uphill battle, but it's a, it's a necessary. Yeah, it's a hard pill to swallow. Many people just prefer to gulp actual pills. Yep. I mean, they, they probably do good uh, to you if you're deficient in some vitamins, minerals, or... I have ADD, so I need to get keep things, you know, just firing in the correct directions sometimes. So what studies um, do we need to learn more? What, what, how to, how to hone in more on the science or reduce it or, you know, pull apart some extra, um, data? Like, what do you think we need to focus on next? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> one of the studies that we had in mind, I'm not sure that it's, um, the best study, uh, that, uh, the industry or the world needs, but we were curious, uh, to see that, these three psychotypes that uh, I have briefly mentioned uh, for people with uh, different propensity for depression, just how flexible uh, they are uh, and how uh, mobile are people within these uh, clusters, what it takes for a person to go from um, a, uh, a region uh, which spells uh, danger to them mentally, mm -hmm. to a more safe, uh, safe place. And uh, we have uh, already been collecting some data uh, using this futureself.ai. We still, yet, we are yet to analyze it and properly go through it. Uh, but eventually this should give us some understanding of um, how much effort does it take for a person uh, to actually, well, improve their psychological well-being. And, and I after think that, that, yep. Sorry, I'm I again my ADD comes in. I'm prone to no, no, interrupting, no, no, so ahead. apologies too. Um, but you know, and it kind of and in this study and in various multiple studies, so much of what gives people good mental health is companionship. Is uh, this is from Mark Twain to get the full uh, was it to get the full value of joy? You must have someone to divide it with. And this doesn't necessarily mean romantic, but it does it definitely, you know, having, you know, people around you, um, you know, I think is, 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 is key. I think that physiologically, emotionally, psychologically, we're humans are built to be pack animals and to be around other ones, a village to raise a kid, if you will. And I think that with the ability to be digital kind of and be able to do everything from one physical place while great in some areas is causing a lot of our social muscles to atrophy and, and, and withdrawal and not know how to interact with the world as we used to or, or how to find a supportive community or companionship um, too. So, you know, I think that that's something that I'll ever, a lot of people single or not are struggling with is find how do I find 
how do I get more companions? How do I find more companionship? And I think that that's, I mean, that's not an easy answer. Um, do you have any thoughts on that one? How do we, how do we get more companionable? How do we get more companionship, yeah. companionship in our lives? Well, <laughs> that really is a tough question, right? With, with no single answer. Although, yeah, the musicians uh, and the poets there, have been there, there struggling was one. for years. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, we, we are trying to create, uh, to develop this Futusaldo TI concept into uh, a more... Um, a more uh, ripe application, uh, which will propose people with uh, small uh, bite-sized recommendations or exercises that they can spend like five minutes a day or dispersed throughout their regular routine uh, to improve one of their well-being aspects, one of them being exactly uh, these close personal re relationships with others. So <clears throat> we're keeping a curated uh, database of these recommendations that pop up in front of users based on uh, their well, psycho uh, psychotype and their own mm -hmm. psychological properties and um, on some educated guesses, guesses on which tips they will be most responsive to. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that one of the more popular, most popular bite-sized advices that we have in our uh, database is uh, practicing gratitude and do not feel uh, do not feel shy when you are grateful for something just say thank you make a compliment or uh, point out that a person has done something good when you think it in your head so these kind I'm of I'm just looking I'm like I think I'm like I think I just read a study like that but I think I put it <laughs> put it put it away um yeah, uh, like for the, the two of my favorite studies, not recent, but that I've come into recently is minimal social act interactions with strangers predict greater well, overall well-being um, mm. and find, remind and bind the functions of gratitude in everyday life. Yes, I have them memorized now. Um, have to try that. To, 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 to that, you know, and I think like functions of gratitude, we say something that makes someone else feel good. The act of making someone else feel good makes us feel good hmm. so just and then with the minimal social interactions it shows with our weak ties how much emotional regulation they actually add to it basically your barista your your bus driver and things like that too and so i think when all that was removed from us uh during pandemic and we went into lockdown we didn't have the ability to see someone do something nice for someone that made us smile because we, we're locked in our homes. We didn't have the ability to show gratitude to everyone to to get that positive feedback loop going. We didn't have minimal social. We had we had no social interactions. We couldn't interact with anyone to have that. I smile at you. You smile at me. When you smile at me, it makes me feel better. Type thing going on. So it's just such a compounding effect of why, how many different ways it it, it affected us. And I am morbidly fascinated to see all of the data that will be pouring out over the next couple of decades about how this has reshaped our brains and social uh, behaviors, you know? Um, so, And there are also all these um, apps to make you new acquaintances, friends, romantic interests. And I also mm -hmm. wonder uh, what will the final effect of all these new technological inventions will be in the long term, because they kind of also go against uh, the usual mode of interaction between mm -hmm. people. Yep. And people don't realize that the goal of the dating website is to extract money from the consumer. 
It is not to get someone paired up. If they got them paired up very, very quickly, they would lose their customer base and have a bad business model. And if they want to, if nobody signed up, they would have a bad business model because no one there. So like the goal is to have some sort of a middling product that keeps you on for like a couple of months. And then since all the same companies own all the sites, if you get off that site and try a different mm-hmm. site, they just double dipped you, uh, you know, for the same thing. And yeah, I think, and it's gamifying, it's asking you what you want shopping list wise and have nothing to do with what you need or how that would affect you or your pheromones or touches or chemistry and all of those type of things too. And which is why I think that my industry is seeing such an expansion in the last two and a half, three years because people are getting sick. Like before the pandemic, nobody was saying the state of dating is great. Um, but now it's, it's, I think people have just gotten sick of all everything being so digital and, and screen oriented that there's kind of a desire to get back to that human connection again. It's just that not a lot of people know how to do it. I just wrote an article for the Mensa magazine on how to reconnect again after COVID just because like just as human beings, like most of us want to make more friends, especially of a certain age. It's hard to just go out and meet a new guy friend, you know? So, you know, I was just trying to give advice on, on like, just one general how to connect with people but like how do we do it after we've been trained for three years to stay inside so yeah, again i think this yeah this gets us back to the very beginning of this uh, talk about emotionally meaningful and time perspective right so all these um kind of interaction uh modes that we have become accustomed to it uh exactly depletes us of emotionally mean- meaningful relationships or the ability to build new emotionally meaningful relationships in case we've uh, we were deprived of that before so and we have to i, I think we that... have to consciously add to something add to it like this muscle is called the glabella and we've been trained as humans to understand that muscle and the one underneath our eyes to understand emotion very well and if we're doing zoom like this you just can't see the subtleties of it so you have to over emote a little bit to get your mm. ideas across <laughs> so that you can build that emotional connection because you have this huge barrier in front of you. So, you know, there are tools and ways that we can do it. It just feels weird for us. But if we're deprived of, if we lose value in one sort of a way, we have to add value in another sort of a way. Um, and I think that people are just trying to figure that out too. But um, yeah. And speaking of time perspective in this context, um, I was just meaning to say that since the things are not quite as stable in the world right now and everybody uh, doesn't know where's, where, the, where the world is going to be in the next year or mm-hmm. what to do with their lives to stay safe or to just maintain the level of comfort they used to, uh, this kind of shrinks the collective time perspective a lot. Uh, right? You cannot enjoy the pleasures of long-term planning and in which case uh, it seems yeah. that more and more people will subconsciously uh, or consciously try to move in the direction of building more meaningful uh, relationships and connections and uh, doing more emotionally charged activities in their lives Good. rather than this exploratory behavior uh, of uh, making short acquaintances uh, or interacting with someone online if they have the ability to uh, meet somebody in person. So in my opinion, this seems to be like a self-regulating, uh, negative feedback loop. The more, uh, people 
uh, engage in this uh, exploratory behavior, uh, and especially in current conditions, the more they uh, feel like it's not that they will eventually want uh, to have in their life and start to uh, value these emotionally meaningful, whoever it is, your, your family, your friends, uh, your significant others, uh, you start to mm, shape your behavior uh, more in line with these motivations. And um, if taken uh, on a societal level or population level, uh, we I do not know where, where it will take us. But I want to hope that uh, it will build um, a, a common sense of solidarity between people to become more I'm emotionally understanding of each other. I'm one of my quests that I'm on, and then I'll let you go. Um, uh, so I'm doing a quest with a capital Q in that something that no human has ever done before. And that my goal is to talk to one person in every country about what dating and relationships are like in their area. Anecdotally but then use that information to see what the commonalities are between humans, between cultures, uh, what the differences are. Because in my opinion, dating is understanding the cultural value system that you're in and knowing how to express it. So different cultures are gonna value different things and that's what people look up to. So, you know, what's valued in East Asian countries, uh, you know, not standing out, not bringing any shame to you is basically polar opposite of New York City and pew, 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 I'm walking here. So it will be, I'm really fascinated to see how this plays out um, and learning all the different things in all the different countries and kind of finding our human connections and, and, and similarities. So I may I may ask uh, to pick your connections and see if you know anybody in other countries that might be interested in talking about this as well too. The, the more, the less mainstream countries, the better I'll get to the big countries at some point. But like, I've spoken to Azerbaijan, Nigeria, um, Ukraine, Iceland, gotten some really cool information. So um, I'm a wannabe scientist. So I'm just going to go, I'm just connect, conducting my own study and I'll figure out what to do with the data afterwards. Um, so I want to thank you for joining me. Um, this was an awesome uh, discussion. And, you know, I want to say again that, you know, this is a lot, a lot of science, but basically what it comes down to is be good to each other companionship and psychological well-being is going is, is more important than physical well-being and if you can get both of those gears working together you know we as a society can help us uh, move forward into a healthier uh, and longer dare I say utopia because it doesn't feel like it at this point um <laughs> you know there's 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 stay, the hope got to stay hopeful yeah exactly exactly uh sometimes it feels like i'm smoking hopium but uh at least you know it keeps you happy so thank you again for being here and i look thank forward you, to another for conversation me. with you bye-bye bye-bye thank you for listening to hunt for relationship science if you like what you heard here and you'd like to learn more please check out my articles and videos at huntforadvice.com you can also follow me at Quest for Advice on Instagram, as well as find me on LinkedIn. And please follow all of our guests as well. You can find their information in the liner notes. I'm Hunt, signing off, changing the world one smile at a time.